0: Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so you can better create products that customers love. This episode is sponsored by the rapid product mastery experience, the RPM experience. This is the fastest way for product VPs and leaders to help their product managers and everyone else contributing to product creation to increase performance. It's unlike any other training. It really is an experience that we do together to build foundational knowledge for everyone, collaborate and build trust, Check it out. Go to productmasterynow.com/rpm and see how it can help you. Today we are talking with a legend in product management. Our guest is Dr. Robert Cooper. He's the one who discovered the now famous StageGate process and was named the world's top innovation management scholar by the prestigious Journal of Product Innovation Management. Besides his best-selling books, Winning at New Products and Portfolio Management for New Products, he has published more than one hundred and thirty articles on R and D and innovation management. He is frequently helping organizations succeed while also holding the role of Professor Emeritus at McMaster University and Distinguished Research Fellow at Penn State University. Listeners, we also always create detailed written show notes for you, a summary of everything we talk about, including a one-page action guide to help you put into action the key takeaways that we'll discuss. To get those resources, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash four four six. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Good to be here.
0: You are someone I wanted to talk with for a very long time. I have followed some of your writings along the way of my career as well. And I appreciate all your work that you have done to contribute to innovation and product management. I'm curious how you ended up in this field. What was your path that led you to this fascination with developing products?
1: Like most things, Chad, it was almost accidental. I had, I had an engineering degree, master's degree in engineering, and somehow switched paths and took an MBA and was working for a smaller business, and one of my first assignments was helping out on a new product we were about to launch, and I thought everything was wonderful, going well. We thought we understood what the customer was looking for, and guess what? It failed. It failed commercially, (laughs) and at the tender age of about 25, I had my first new product failure, and I was discussing this when I had returned to my university for a quick visit, which wasn't too many miles away, with my professor, one of my marketing professors. And he said, you know what? That would make a good topic for a PhD thesis. Why don't you come back? So I did go back and did a PhD in the area of the role of marketing inputs and why they don't happen and why new products fail as a result. So that was the beginning of it all many years ago. But again, quite accidental and quite luckily, actually.
0: Fantastic. Just follow the opportunities that were open to you. That's a good story. Thanks for sharing it with us. There's so many things we could talk about. It's hard to constrain the topics, but I have a path for us. And the first one I want to ask you about was the key challenges that you see today, medium and large organizations that are encountering when they're trying to get new products into the
1: marketplace. The first challenge is perhaps strategic. We're facing very difficult and challenging and almost a new uncertainty in the years ahead. We have this looming economic situation, interest rates, inflation, possible recession coming. We have this war going on in Europe. We have China and the situations around it. We have still supply chain issues and rapidly increasing prices. And there's so many risks and uncertainties. And I guess the first thing, a big challenge a lot of companies have to think about is what do we do short term to keep the lights on, pay the rent and pay the employees? And what do we do longer term? What are the bolder innovations? So that's a new type of strategic question that that we face that I haven't really seen in, in my career. It was so many tough things looming on the immediate horizon. Some companies, of course, will retreat. They'll cut their spending. They'll cut their bolder, longer-term innovations. And we saw in the last major recession back in around 2010, that was a bad strategy. Those companies that cut uh, cut their innovation, did only the minimal improvements, modifications, tweaks, necessity type projects, those guys didn't do nearly as well coming out. And so that was one lesson learned, and that was written up on the Harvard Business Review article. So that's, I think, is the first challenge, Chad, is what the heck do we do? And obviously, you got to keep the foot to the gas pedal, got to have your shorter term projects to deal with the immediate situations. It's a little difficult to generalize because, of course, every industry and every company is somewhat different than their next door neighbor or the other industry. Some industries, obviously, are fairly mature these days. They've, the industry got its head of steam back in 100 years ago. The chemical industry, for example, polymers and plastics, 1930s, 1940s, almost 100 years old. It is increasingly difficult to find opportunities. And a lot of the new products, let's face it, are tweaks or modifications or some fairly minor requests that a customer makes. I was reading a book recently on the Idea Factory. It was about the AT&T Bell Labs that started up in the early 1900s and finally got shut down around the 1980s. And the comment made by one of the directors at the time was, there was no absence of problems. No matter where they looked in telecommunications back in the 1920s, 30s, they couldn't even send a long-distance call when they started because there were no amplifiers. There were no vacuum tubes they could use. Of course, the transistor hadn't even been thought of, so they had to invent all these things, a usable vacuum tube, a transistor, and so on. And so when you have no absence of customer or user problems, if you're reasonably intelligent, usually you can come up with the inventions and the necessary breakthrough new products. Today it's a little harder in the telecommunications business because, yeah, there are problems, but not quite as evident as the ones I just mentioned, not being able to send a long-distance call because there's no amplifier. So some industries are all very mature, mechanical engineering, chemical industry, polymers, etc. Others, obviously, the IT industry is still going strong, still many opportunities, still lots of problems to solve, etc. But it's becoming increasingly scarce. So it's tough to find fantastic voids in the marketplace, tougher and tougher, I find. So that's one of the challenges. And I guess the other one is the fortitude of the general manager of his or her business unit to keep on spending at the same level when it is tougher and tougher to get the return on investment that you need. The markets are competitive, the global, the voids in the marketplace, as I just mentioned, may not be quite as evident and quite as large as they once were. So that is tougher and tougher. On the other hand, there's all kinds of new technologies. Look at AI, the opportunities it affords or the threats it affords, (laughs) depending on the point of view you have. So, you know, there's all kinds. And then, of course, biosciences and and new opportunities in the medical field, all kinds of new things coming along in terms of technological possibilities, which should generate all kinds of new product opportunities. Bit of, on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of argument here.
0: Yeah, those commodity industries, things tend to slow, and then there seems to be some big breakthrough, and we find new value creation for customers and consumer preferences changes. On this issue of just the strategic challenge, the more uncertainty trying to wrestle with the tactical issues, what we do now versus more strategy. Um, Do you have any specific advice that you give leaders, or maybe you can reflect on a conversation you've had lately about some of these challenges and what you've shared with the leaders?
1: There's a number of different kinds of risks and uncertainties. I mentioned one of them was supply chain, but there's obviously other ones, the more traditional ones, such as market size and, and expected sales and expected profitability, those numbers that we put in our business cases are notoriously wrong, and wrong often by a factor of two. And more and more, when people put together a business case for a significant project, I don't mean a small, pretty well-known, tried-and-proven area, but a significant, maybe bolder project, likely there is going to be a lot of risks around some of those numbers and product design issues, and therefore that's got to be built in somehow. I am working with a large group of smaller businesses, and I, I see their business cases. And it's a program that we have here in Canada, funded by the federal government. That's not unlike that TV show Shark Tank, except we really do give them money at the end, and not just uh, go on the air to create amusement here. And I see dozens of business cases every year, and uh, frankly, they're fantasy because there are so many there are so many unknowns, Chad. That you, that not to factor them in somehow with a fudge factor or a correction factor, which usually people don't. So one of the suggestions I have is that take a hard look at how you do your business cases in light of increasing uncertainties and build that in somehow. I have a new article coming out on a new concept that we came up with many years ago, but could never apply because we didn't know how. And it's called expected commercial value which builds in likelihoods. And of course, how do you estimate likelihoods? What's the probability of commercial success here? Who knows? Pick a number, right? But now there are better ways of doing that. And this we have some estimates. Some companies like a division of Dow Chemical, a division of 3M have put together probability tables that say under certain circumstances, this is your likelihood of success. Because they've studied enough projects that they know what the likelihood of success is. History sort of dictates to a certain extent the future. And these, some of these data are becoming more and more public. So we know that if we got a new product that's a real customer energizer that takes us into a familiar area, that we have the necessary marketing capabilities, we have the tech. The odds of success are eighty-five percent, versus the other extreme where it's more like ten or twelve percent. And nobody factors those numbers into their calculations. Everyone assumes it's going to be successful.
0: Everything will (laughs) go just
1: right. (laughs) Yeah, and does the net present value calculations accordingly with no correction factors built in at all? Of course, it is fantasy. The higher the uncertainties, the more those business cases are fantasy. So that's one. The other one, of course, is getting the product right. And the major message I have here for people that are worried about, we go out and do voice a customer analysis, voice a customer study, and we think we understand what the customer needs, what his or her hot buttons are, what their points of pain are, and we start designing the product. And we spend the next year designing and developing a prototype or sample product. And then we go to do field trials, and everything goes wrong. And we find out that the whole world has changed because it changes quickly these days, or the customer wasn't quite right in what they told us. They didn't really understand their own needs, and so on. One of the things we're recommending and have for some time is iterative innovation. And this is a concept borrowed from, or perhaps they borrowed it from us, the software industry in Silicon Valley where you build something really fast and you demo it to the customer to get instant feedback rather than waiting for a year to go out and do field trials or customer consumer tests or whatever. Get it out in their face, in the customer's face, fast, early, often, and cheap. And the first version doesn't have to be the real product. If you're coming up with a new beer, you don't have to actually produce the beer in your lab and take it out to the customer and say, try it. You can come up with a protocept that can be totally animated, showing people enjoying the beer and here's what it is and making comments about it, oh, this is a lovely female beer, I love this as a woman, it tastes like wine kind of thing. They can, you can do that with computer simulation, you don't need the beer. The same thing for uh, Lego does the same thing with toys, they create computer animated versions of the toys long before they have the phys- physical blocks there for the kids to play with. So... Get something out there in the first three weeks of development, show the customer something and do that all the way through, maybe every four weeks out in front of the customer demoing and demoing to management too, because obviously you need their continuing buy-in and support. So this is the key way you handle the risk of not quite understanding what the customer is looking for or the customer changing her mind or a new competitive product coming out or the whole world changing By doing these constant iterations and getting validation in real time, not at the end of development, but in real time, uh, that handles that risk. So that's a key thing to do. So two major messages, Uh, business cases, built-in uncertainty, and this iterative development to deal with changing situations, fluid information.
0: Yeah, that's really critical. And it's been a big shift from, as you said, doing that voice of the customer research, going off for several months to create the product and then delivering something that the environment has just changed. And we need that rapid feedback. And I love the quote from the founder of LinkedIn that said, if you're not embarrassed by the first release of your product, you, you waited
1: too long. Right. Yeah. And I think Steve Jobs also had another good quote saying, customers don't know what they want until they see it. So the message is, show them something. Right. You can do voice of customer till the cows come home, but still get it wrong. Right. Because the customer doesn't know what their points of pain are, or maybe you're talking to the wrong customer or the wrong user in a B2B situation. You're talking to the wrong guy in the factory, for mm-hmm. example. Lots of surprises on a house. I remember a situation that I mentioned Lego before. Lego has a B2B business called Lego Education, mm-hmm. which is selling learning products or teaching products to, to schools and teachers. It's a combination of IT software and the block. So I guess they get. They build things out of the blocks, but there's some software behind it. And it teaches the kids math and spelling and creative writing. And there was a new product coming out that they were working on for about four years and couldn't get it right. It was called, it was, a, it was a creative writing to teach your younger children how to be more creative writers. And they would sit the teachers. They had several panels of teachers as voice a customer. And they'd sit them down and say, what are you looking for in this product? And they'd say, we're not sure. And another line of, what's your major problem here? The major problem is, how do you teach Johnny and Mary how to be a more creative writer? That's the problem. And we don't know how to do it. That's the other problem. And it wasn't. And so one of the teachers finally said, why don't you guys build something and show it to us? And then we'll tell you if it's right. And so the team got into this iterative development. And that's what led to Lego adopting this iterative or agile stage gate, as they called it, because it builds in the aspects of agile this iterative notion of demoing every four weeks in their case. And it worked very well.
0: It's a good example. I also think LEGO has a key strength in their community. I know my son has participated in their LEGO community, providing models that, you know, same thing, like you said, as a, when he was like eight years old, using their 3D tool to design new ways of putting blocks together, new models, and then submitting that That to the community. And yeah, it's such a powerful tool to get the community involved.
1: They're a very excellent company, obviously. We all know them well having had kids.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And especially if we've stepped on a few Legos in the middle of the night that would happen to be left (laughs) around on the floor. (laughs) I'm taking a brief break from the interview to tell you about an upcoming conference. If I only attend one conference a year, it is this one, PDMA's Inspire Innovation Conference. PDMA, the Product Development and Management Association, they've been around researching, developing, and curating the product management and innovation body of knowledge since 1976. There's a great depth of discipline here for us to tap into. This is where people new to product go to meet those with deep experience, and is also where those with deep experience go to network with others. This year, I'll not only be attending sessions and networking, but also conducting face-to-face interviews with the speakers. We'll be discussing topics on product innovation processes customer insights portfolio management and much more i hope you also consider attending it's september 16th to 19th in new orleans louisiana and the early bird rate is still being offered so you can save some money right now but only until july 27th you have to register before july 27th so check it out by going to pdma.org that's pdma.org. And when you come to the conference, please introduce yourself to me as I would love to meet you. I love this conference. Hope you can come. I also want to talk about portfolio management since you have done a lot of work in this area. Product managers often don't think about portfolio management so much, but product leaders most certainly do. I think it's important for both to have some idea about this. What's been going on in that area that maybe we need to rethink a little bit as organizations or have you seen any changes going on in how we think about managing a portfolio of products?
1: I think one of the major challenges that that portfolio managers, if there is such a, a person, uh, very often it's their PMO office or somebody that's overseeing the portfolio, uh, that one of the major challenges we simply have too many projects in the pipeline for the available resources. I don't think I've been in a company in the last 10 years that hasn't had that problem. And I don't care whether you're in the paint business or in the toy business or in the beer business, there's always too many projects. Yep. And, of course, the default option, Chad, is nobody's got the fortitude or the chutzpah to say no, so we do them all. And by doing them all, we guarantee they're all late. That's a given. And why do we do them all? Because nobody wants to say no to a project that looks good. At least they thought they looked good at the beginning. Now, what we find out when you do a portfolio review, when we're facing this tough issue, and you actually do a re-rating of all the projects... And a re-ranking of them, you'll find out that a few of them that look shiny and bright at the beginning are not quite so shiny and bright. Over time, they all get some of them get wards, and so maybe it is time for periodic tough re-reviews of the entire set of projects and killing some of them. For the benefit of the whole portfolio, reallocating, let's say you you rank them one to end, within one bucket, I use the term bucket here, within one category of projects, let's say major innovations, and you have 15 of them on the books, and they're all moving slowly because everyone's screaming and yelling, we need more people, we need more time, more money. So you rank them one to 15, lop off the bottom five, reallocate the resources to the top 10. But who's got the guts to do that? Because you're going to be annoying somebody who thought it was a good project. You're also going to be discouraging or hurting the project team who's worked very hard on it. But let's face it, some projects are the bottom third. And maybe their resources are better spent on the top two-thirds and move forward. But to do that, you've got to have, first of all, this notion of buckets because you can't start comparing bold innovations to minor modifications. The minor modifications always seem to turn out better because they're low risk and can be done fast. So you need to categorize your projects into buckets and then rank them within buckets. And somebody's got to have the method to do that and the guts to do that and get top management on board. I've sat through some of those meetings. They're pretty tough, especially the first one. And nobody likes to say no. Nobody wants to stand in front of a project. They're like express trains. They just roll down the tracks and nobody's going to get off the commuter platform and stand in front of it. But it's a tough exercise, got to be done, otherwise your projects are going to be late or under-resourced in some way and people start taking shortcuts, success rates go down and so forth. So that's a tough one and no easy answers to that one. There are good methods for ranking projects and that's part of it. Getting management involved, that's part of it. Having a tough portfolio manager who really pushes hard here. Having a good data system. I heard a, a software company, a guy from a software company the other day, uh, one of the well-known ones, I won't mention their names because of commercial. This is not a commercial for them. But I'm uh, talking about data. Do you have the data necessary to do portfolio management, to show the state of affairs of the portfolio? And another thing that came out of the PDMA study done most recently that Gloria Bartzak and a few of her colleagues published in the journal just recently, showed that in terms of best practices, people are not doing re-reviews of projects. They are not redoing the business cases. They're Mm. not doing that in real time. And that's got to be done. All too often, when projects go through gates or portfolio reviews, the only criteria for go, is it on schedule? Is it on time? Is it on budget? And and if it is, it's a go. Those are the wrong questions. Those are backward-looking questions. It's got to be a forward-looking question. Does this project still offer great value to the company? What's the, the the financial value going forward? And there are good metrics for that. And net present value is one of them, excluding sunk cost. Productivity index I find a fantastic metric for that. It addresses the question: For every day we spend on this project, how much money do we make? And that's got to be a key metric to to rank projects and get rid of the dogs. So that's going to be that's a real tough one, to Chad. Enough. No easy answers, unfortunately, but there are answers. They're all tough to implement, and it takes a guy like you to go in there and force it to happen.
0: Oh, well, I think you've been that guy many times too, right? Help this. Yeah, end, I, end. I've had my
1: fair share of fistfights in a portfolio review.
0: Very challenging. You mentioned the buckets. I've seen different bucket strategies, like we're going to put most of our dollars towards the support kind of bucket, what we're already doing, and incrementally. Uh, some money towards maybe breakthrough things that might expand our opportunities, and maybe some money mm-hmm. towards the radical, the new things that mm-hmm. might take us somewhere completely else. Any comments on, on bucket strategies, bucket approaches?
1: I, I hate to mention a competitive association to ours, but it's the Industrial Research Institute, mm-hmm. the IRI in Washington, which is really an association of R&D managers and directors and VPs, etc. They're, con- because these guys are, tend to be senior level, they're always worried about that issue of stri- They're always w- worried about strategy. And they recently did a study, and I helped them with it, on where is the money going. But the notion here is that the average decision maker is optimal, but the probability of any one of us being average is just about zero. So they were interested in where is the typical company spending their money. And they have come out with uh, with some pretty good pie charts on this. I guess if anyone's interested, they could always send me an email and I could share that study. I believe it is in now in the public domain, or at least I have a copy of it and I could share it if, if I got a specific request. I'm not sure I want to post it online yet. Okay. But that that gets some pretty good breakdowns and and some variation around it. Unfortunately, they didn't push it far enough. They didn't get into by industry or they didn't get do a breakdown by industry or do a breakdown of like Gloria does, or PDMA does, or we do of best companies versus rest of the companies. They did not do that, but still seeing where the money goes is very interesting. But by the way, that's the first key step, Chad, and I'm glad you raised it, is do you know where your money or resources are going when you do a breakdown between bold innovations, regular new products, modifications, improvements and fixes and cost reductions, say four buckets? Do you know where your resources, and it's usually person days or person power, Do you know where the resources are going now? Because if you don't know that, then how can you even discuss where they should be going tomorrow? So the first thing to do is to be able to do a breakdown of, let's do a breakdown across those four buckets by numbers of projects, and then resources, where the resources are going, second pie chart, and then maybe a third chart is, when we look at the business cases from these projects, what's the first year sales? Where's it coming from these four categories? And you sometimes get a hell of a shock that where the sales are coming from, i.e. profit, It's not where the resources are going. In other words, you're putting most of your seed on the worst fields, the rocky and thorny fields, as the Bible talked about. (laughs) So that's maybe not a good strategy. But that's a good place to start, by the way, just doing those three pie charts.
0: You've mentioned PDMA a little bit. I happen to be one of the authors now working on the third edition of PDMA's Body of Knowledge to Product Innovation Management. And I see you have a book on your counter back there behind you, which is the new PDMA handbook. I'll get it right here. Yeah, Bob's grabbing that. May as that. well do a plug
1: for Yeah. May as well do a plug for these guys, Chad. Okay. This is the new PDMA handbook. Okay. It's a handbook put out by two editors, Ludwig, that's stellar, and Charlie, uh, Charlie Noble. Noble. Yep. And both, yeah, yeah, both these guys work worked like hell, and they got a lot of authors. This is a very thick book. This is a must-read. It's on Amazon, if anyone wants it. It just came out on the market, I believe, in May. And it has just about everything that the experienced leader in product development uh, should know. This is not a a new products for dummies book. This is not for the beginner. This is for the guy that's been around the block a few times in product development. And uh, it's a fabulous book and highly recommended. Also highly recommended for academics too. So they've got to get a little closer to reality in some cases. And this is a good book to bring them back to reality. I've had the privilege of doing chapter one for the last three editions, including this one. And it's basically about success factors in product development. And it was a real tough chapter to write because when I wrote the first chapter, the first time back in the year 2000, uh, this uh, handbook comes out about every decade. In 2000, the literature search was reasonably short. There were only a handful of studies done on what leads to success at the project level and at the company level in terms of product development. And uh, this time I had a a literature search that I think included some 600 articles of people doing studies in some part of the world on here is what leads to success. And it is surprising some of the new knowledge that has come out of this. The obvious ones are still there. Voice of customer is important. Hello. Doing the upfront homework, doing the due diligence is important. Do that too. Having an effective cross-functional team with empowerment and is dedica- at least partially dedicated to the project but there's some new ones too and that those are some of the ones that surprised me and some of the ones that didn't come in as loud, as loud and clear as I thought too but it's a good it's a good good book and a good chapter to read
0: fantastic we'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes to make it easier for people to find it as well there's one other question I wanted to ask you about and that was stagegate. And you researched StageGate many years ago. You researched what companies were doing, and that became what you published a StageGate with some colleagues. What is it today that you think people misunderstand about StageGate that you would like to like like for them to know about?
1: I think you you gave a little bit of the history here. I was a fairly junior, middle, fairly new professor when I applied for a grant, and it was actually in Canada from our government to, to do a study, a fairly sophisticated study. A, mathematical theoretical study and remember the granting officer from the government looking at me and saying I don't understand the damn thing you're planning on doing here can't you make it simple and then he turned to me and said you know what this country needs some damn good stories I said what do you mean some damn good stories?" he says why why do you write some stories of successful entrepreneurs within companies how they did it and I said to him I'm not an investigative journalist I don't write stories he says do you want the money I said, yeah. He says, write the friggin' stories. (laughs) And guess what? (laughs) As I drove back to my university that day, I I said, what am I going to do? I've got roped into something I'm not. So anyway, I talked to my dean, who was a marketing professor. He says, we've got a lot of guys that teach night school, night MBA, and they work for different companies. Why don't I give you a list of them and why don't you phone them? And sure enough, I started the the talking. One of the guys worked for United Technologies, Pratt & Whitney. New turbine and turbine turbojet engine and things like that. And these stories of these entrepreneurial teams came together one after another. I started, I also went over into New York State, which is right next to us and a few, uh, I was in Montreal at the time and a few northeastern United States, uh, states in the U.S. and wrote these stories. And one day when I was presenting them at a conference, somebody put their hand up and said, Cooper, enough with the stories, enough with the flow diagrams. Why don't you pull it all together and put out a, a, an article or a white paper on, here's how these teams did it, here's how you ought to do it. And lo and behold, that became the beginning of StageGate. Now, you've got to remember, these are all very entrepreneurial, very bold, uh, fairly assertive project leaders and teams that did everything right and had huge successes. Like that jet engine went on to become one of the most popular turboprop engines, I should say, for a turbojet, turboprop. Engines for power and commuter aircraft, the PT6 uh, engine. The thing that companies have missed today is they've lost that entrepreneurial risk taking approach. They've burdened their stage gate process with so much bump, so much paperwork, so many forms to fill out, so many check the box exercises, deliverables package. I went to a gate meeting once at a, I'll pick a European company because I don't want to Embarrass anybody in the U.S., but this was a company in in in, in Scandinavia that made controls. Uh, and I went to the meeting, and and the project team presented a 100-page loose-leaf binder of deliverables to a gate the meeting. I said, "You gotta be kidding! You're lucky if they will read the first three pages, like the executive summary was three pages." And people don't have time to do this. This is non-value-added work. What are you doing here? So the first suggestion I say to anybody that wants to improve their process is get rid of the non-value-added work, which is defined as bureaucracy, work that adds no value. So apply lean principles, lean principles. And we've seen lean work on the factory floor to improve production efficiency, etc. It's the same methodology of value stream analysis or value stream mapping. You just go through your process beginning to end map it out on a big wall with a big roll of paper, post-it notes, etc., and map it out and go through it beginning to end and get rid of the bullshit, get rid of the non-necessary stuff. And you'd be amazed at how fast you can do that. It only takes about a day to do the exercise and then you got to work on how to improve it. That's it's a little bit longer. But I've seen that one company, whose name is Danfoss actually, a European controls company, they went through this exercise before they implemented Agile and they were able to cut their time to market from the preliminary investigation, they call it gate M0, to the launch gate, they call that M5 or M4. They were able to cut that from about 3.5 years for a major project down to one and a half years, a 50% reduction. Incredible. And everybody that does this lean exercise gets dramatic improvements. Mm-hmm. So before you jump to agile, agile's not a solution for a bad process. So get your process working right. Get it lean, get it mean, and remove the unnecessary stuff. And once you do that, then get into some of the Agile principles. And I think that that's what we're encouraging people to do. It, it, the, the, this leaning down is not as sexy and topical as going to Agile, but it sure does deliver results. And then when you've done that, then when you've done that, then it's time to start saying, oh, okay, let's start bringing in some of the Agile principles of sprints and, and demos and sprint planning meetings and backlogs and all that kind of good stuff
0: really excellent advice, because it's actually advice I haven't heard before. I knew lean principles are being added, but get the process right, make it lean, cut out the, the things that aren't serving us, and focus on what is actually adding value. And once you have that in place, then think about adding sprints to your actual stages, adding agile type of capabilities. That's really helpful. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that listeners love innovation quotes, at least I hope they do, because we always try to bring one. I love them as well. What's a quote that you brought for us, and what does that mean to you?
1: Maybe this is a bit of a long one. You asked me to think of one, and of course, when you let people think of it in advance, they make it longer than it probably should be. But I always remind senior people and middle-level people too, there's two ways to win at new products. And the first way is to do projects. And that's what these various processes, such as a gating process or stage gate, have been all about. They lay out a roadmap or a game plan. I often, if I'm in North America, I often think about a a football team, march on a football, on a touchdown, march all the way down the field to a touchdown. What's the game plan? What's the play? What are the set of plays we're going to do? And that stage gate process does that. It maps out the process stage by stage and makes strong suggestions as to what you should be doing in each stage. Like in stage two, build business case. Here's 10 key things the project team ought to think about voice a customer study, a competitive analysis, a market study, a technical feasibility, a source of supply assessment, an intellectual prop, all the things they should be doing. And often we find in the case of new product failures, they haven't done or they've done a really short job on it and skipped a few, few steps here. So a stage gate process lays out step by step what good and successful project teams do. And that's a real good guide for the The new project leader, based on what successful guys have done in the past, let's follow their path. And that's what a stage gate process does. And of course, agile is another set of best practices that you can build into your stage gate system, build agile project management into the stages of stage gate. So that's the doing projects right part. The second way to win is do the right projects. And that we haven't spent as much time on. That, that is the ish area of portfolio management, mm-hmm. picking winners, making the right investment decisions, knowing when to say yes, and more importantly, knowing when to say no. Or as the old Kenny Rogers song said, and it, it really is all about portfolio management, know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. <laughs> Get so far away from that project. That's definitely then that is a very weak area. And again, this PDMA study that just came out this year, I think March of 2023 points out that portfolio management continues to be a weak area. Mm-hmm. Most of the firms, the average firm rated their system very weak. They have no system. They, they aren't doing it very well to the extent it does exist informally. Uh, and that is a hugely weak area. People have got the process down pretty well, although too bureaucratic, but they haven't got down the project selection. Mm-hmm. So, Two ways to win at new products, do projects, have a nice process that works, and do the right projects, have an excellent portfolio management system that helps you make the right decisions. Fantastic. And there are good best practices for both.
0: We have two things to accomplish, doing projects right, and also doing the right projects. This has just been a delightful conversation. For people that do want to find out more about you, your writings, the resources you have available, where can we point them to?
1: I do have a web page, website, that has a lot of the more recent articles, say from 2016 on, and that is a very easy www. It's www.bobcooper, all one word, Bob Cooper, with two O's, just like the automobile, the Mini Cooper, bobcooper.ca. And CA is for Canada, so it's not .com, it's .ca, bobcooper.ca. And on there you can download. I don't look for your name. You don't have to register. It's not a way I'm getting a mailing list. So people can go on without giving their name and download and it's free. And that saves you A, some trouble and B, some money. So we have articles on portfolio management, on StageGate, on Agile StageGate, on strategy, et cetera. So that's probably a pretty good resource if you want to get more from me on that.
0: Okay. There's an article that I have referred people to before, and I'm curious if it's on that site because I don't know if it is. And you wrote this with Edget several years ago on the different voice of the customer approaches. Basically ranked them on a matrix of their mm. value. How good of a job did they do for the organization using them? Mm-hmm. Their kind of their time and commitment. And I think it was fourteen different voice of the customer approaches. Yeah, that
1: was for I that was for idea generation. Remember that one. And you know what? I don't know if it, that article is on there because it's been some time since I've worked with Edget, uh, who unfortunately passed away a, a few years ago. So mm. um he was not well for 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 a number of years. Uh sadly, he was a good man. If anyone a, wants that article, it can be obtained by just sending me an email. Because there is a contact opportunity on that website. Okay. So, if you don't see what you want, you can send me and I get a message and or just to send me an email directly. Fantastic. Really good. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to be sorry I opened up that.
0: You, ver, I was going to say, you're off. very generous. And yeah. if we need to help manage that, you let me know too. So, we'll figure okay, something good. out. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Delightful conversation. Really appreciate it. Listeners, we're actually going to continue this conversation. We have a private community and we have the opportunity for people to come and join. And I have a follow-up question. I want—I know I want to ask Bob about doing the right projects, and we'll do that in our private community right after this. If you want to be part of that community, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash community. Everyone, if you want to find those written show notes that we create a detailed summary of everything that Bob just shared, including a one-page action guide help you put into action the key takeaways, go to productmasterynow.com slash 446. Bob, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate your time. And everyone else, keep innovating.
1: Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.